It's February 7th, 2022, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's acquisition headlines. And why not? We'll start with the PBBE Reform Commission picks, which came out last week. And of course, that's the Congressional Commission to Reform the Planning, Programming, Budgeting, Execution System, which is that McNamara 1960s industrial era thing that we we all think needs some change. Now, the people that we got coming out are the Honorable Eric Fanning, former Secretary of the Army, Robert Hale, the former DOD comptroller, Ross Shaw, who was the guy who actually ran Defense Innovation Unit Experimental back in those days where he still had the X to the DIU. And finally, you got Ellen Lord, who was uh, Undersecretary of Defense Acquisition Sustainment just most recently. So there's the, the big four that came out. We're, we're waiting on 10 more from the appropriations committees as well as leadership and two go to the Department of Defense itself. So we're still waiting on those. We were supposed to get all of the members appointed January 26th, but hopefully you know, the, the rest will come out. So that, those are the first picks. It's got some really big names and weight behind it. Uh, and you, Matt McGregor, <laughs> and your team over there at MITRE, including Pete Modigliani and Greg Grant, came out with a, a recent PBB reform kind of paper structuring what you think needs to happen. So I'll let you give a quick pitch over there and any thoughts on these uh, commissioners. No, I mean, the, it, I think it's a good it's a good group of, you know, high, like you said, very senior folks who've been in the department, been through a few rounds of the budget cycle. So they, they know, you know, some of those pain points. And so, no, it's good. It's good that we're getting, uh, you know, prestigious people uh, who, can, who can potentially kind of influence some of the recommendations that come out. So, so all around good. We'll look forward to seeing the rest of the picks soon. And yeah, we did, uh, we did write a, a paper, um, you know, like we had talked about before, Eric, it's like trying to, trying to understand the principles that should sort of underlie uh, the, 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 the budget reforms that these commissioners take on and the final recommendation. So we really just wanted to get some, some thoughts out on, on, on what, what things should the uh, commissioners be focused on. We identified like four key challenges about, you know, the timeliness, which I think everybody knows, and strategic alignment, responsiveness, and transparency. Those are all really, you know, core, core things that I think everybody can get on board with. And then just having, you know, those pillars of, you know, focusing on strategy, building that collaboration, transparency. You know, we've talked a lot about value-focused oversight versus just compliance with like, you know, plans and baselines, having some flexibility, right, uh, to, especially for some of those emerging tech things, and ultimately having accountability to the people that uh, that, are, that are ultimately responsible in executing the, the different efforts. So yeah, I got those out there. We've gotten some, some good feedback and look forward to look forward to getting some more. But thanks. Yeah, <laughs> okay. So um, a lot of a lot of really great stuff there. And, you know, one of the challenges of this commission is going to be kind of keeping the the scope narrow enough, right? Because we don't need this thing. It's a really broad mandate that they're going to go look after. And as long as they focus on some of the things you were talking there uh, in terms of, you know, accelerating the timeliness of getting funding, allowing some flexibility, but also value focused oversight, like these core principles that can accelerate, uh, you know, adoption of technology. So ultimately the PBB reform commission it's not really just about let's just do some more reform to do reform, right? It's about we have to complete that cycle for sustained change uh, to actually, you know, compete with China and Russia in the 21st century. And of course, we have a lot more resources going into it. We can't rely on just out resourcing these guys uh, for the rest of the century. So something needs, needs to change, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and it's just one of those things, too, where 
I think there's been enough, you know, discussion on all the opportunities that are available to the DoD and, and how DoD is kind of operating around the fringes of kind of exploiting some of this, the commercial advances, but we haven't gone full-fledged. And a lot of that is just not having the flexibility in the system to pursue something that you see that could be really beneficial and having to go through all that, that long, prolonged process, that lead-up time that the commercial sector just can't, can't handle. So, yeah, I'm hoping we can uh, really affect some, some positive changes here. Great. All right, so the first article we'll hit on here is change how OTAs are used and make them essential tool against China. So it's not just PBBE reform that's the tool against China, so are OTAs and everything else that we can align um, in this strategic competition bucket. But he's mo- he's mentioning here that Section 824 of the 22 NDAA is calling for the Secretary of Defense to explore the merits of expanding OTAs to include procurement and sustainment. Uh, so... Of course, this whole article is just about expanding OTA use. And a couple quick numbers coming out of uh, just some of the new 21 data uh, for OTAs. Uh, there's actually been another year of growth. If you just take out the that COVID stuff, you know, obligations for OTAs have actually grown from 8.6 to 11.5 billion, which is actually a pretty healthy growth because it hadn't really grown too much the year before. But the real big thing is that production OTAs have grown from 300 million to over 1 billion in FY21. So that's like the real growth in that next potential. And I guess this uh, NDAA here is really exploring, you know, how much can this be used for procurement and sustainment? Because right now, I guess you have to go through that prototype competition and then you get the, the sole source follow-ons for procurement and sustainment. But I wasn't really sure what they were thinking about there. Does that mean like I can just without that prototype phase, like transition something in procurement or sustainment to an OTA? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think they were really trying to expand the aperture. Once again, the way that the way that it was written was not that the department was immediately authorized to go do this. It was for the Secretary of Defense to explore, you know, how this could work. So I, I think there is probably some follow-on legislation for some of these. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, it, it definitely, I went back and reread it. It definitely expands the aperture, um, talking about right sustainment of capabilities without the need for prototyping, um, awarding ag- like agreements uh, to support the organic industrial base, awarding agreements for prototyping of services and acquisition of services, kind of interesting, um, awarding uh, alternative authorities or policies to execute agreements with private sector consortia. So yeah, they really open the aperture. I think Congress is trying to say, uh, show us how this would work, and then you know then we'll expand the authority, but. Uh, yeah, I hope I hope the DoD can really put together a compelling case on on how we can really go after a lot of these other areas of priorities. Yeah, and potentially one place in procurement, but especially sustainment, that might be useful is uh, 3D printing. And so the next story here is Navy looks to 3D printing for submarine parts to ease burden on strained industrial base. And so one of the interesting things here is actually that the Block Five of the Virginia class submarine, its mid-body payload module actually increased workload by 25%. So that's a lot just on this new module here. And um, one of the issues is as the Columbia class starts coming online, not only do you have extra amount of work on the larger Block 5s, which are actually kind of pushing some of that um, Navy infrastructure uh, issues because they have to overfill some of those docks, but uh, they also have the Columbia class coming online in 2024 and starting one year or one a year production in 2026. And so they're going to have a lot of extra capacity and it doesn't look like the industrial base is 
very easily able to um, flex given the current methods that they're using. So they're looking at putting printed parts onto submarines. Uh, I guess in the past, the Navy wouldn't allow that for you know riskier platforms like aircraft and submarines. They had been using them for surface ships, but now they're already kind of, uh, I guess, opening up that aperture and saying, hey, we're going to try to get you know, from six to 10 components on the Columbia class to be 3D printed. And so uh, there you go. We'll see. They, they have a number of, I guess they're giving preference to the existing firms to 3D print them if they can, but otherwise it might go go outsource to other firms and maybe they license those designs or something like that in order to make it possible. But again, I'm pretty bullish on the 3D printing. Hopefully that's able to actually, you know, solve a lot of these supply chain problems that seem that we've been having and complexity with too many parts, right? Yeah. Well, in particular, like I think the, the situation here is um, the, the most fragile part of the submarine industrial bases is, is all the, the castings and forgings and things like that, which are a problem on almost any sort of advanced, uh, you know, military uh, program. The F-35 has the same things. They use a lot of titanium and that requires forgings. And, and sometimes the pipeline for those forgings can be, over a year, you know, by the time you order it and, and, and you actually get it. So um, oftentimes you have to like pay like expediency fees and things like that to actually get it, get further up in the, in, in the, uh, the, you know, the, the orders or whatever to, to, to be, uh, to get your part done. So, so that's a huge part. If you can, if you can bring in 3d printing to get after some of that for some of these, you know, high end systems. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of cost savings there and just efficiency savings because yeah, the, the system just can't keep up. But yeah, 3D printing is, is it's, uh, I mean, it's on an exponential by all the market forecasts, exponential. I read something here about, uh, you know, they had about 2.1 million units of 3D printers in 2020. And we're talking high-end printers here, not like your home, 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 home things. Um, and that's expected to reach 15.3 million by 2028. So it's just a, it's exponential curve there. And just the technology, the individual technologies too, like, you know, selective laser sintering and electron beam melting and laser metal deposition, like all these sort of, you know, uh, growing ones that have larger applicability beyond just making plastic parts in your house, you know? So, um, so yeah, 3d printing is going to be the future, no doubt. All right. Microsoft HoloLenses three is a shit show and proves that they don't understand consumer market from windows central. And so there's an explosive, quote-unquote, explosive new report from Business Insider uh, that's kind of looking at HoloLens and mixed reality at Microsoft. And they're saying uh, there's Microsoft has no idea what it's doing. The HoloLens 3 was reportedly canceled in 2021. Uh, Samsung was focusing on the hardware and Microsoft was focusing on the software. And there's some disruption between that handoff, apparently. Uh, there's some infighting in the HoloLens team. And they're also kind of not only infighting, there a lot of employees have left as well. And then there's also this kind of note here that um, the Army's IVAS system, which is based on the HoloLens 2 model, uh, is actually having major quality issues and is behind schedule. Uh, I'm not really sure how bad the IVAS really is. I guess we have a, an IG report coming out. And it seems like it's doing a lot of things pretty well. Pete actually had a recent post on on their ability to kind of iterate through, so... Um, but anyway, this kind of looks bad from, I guess, the commercial HoloLens aspect. So I was pretty interested to see it. I, I couldn't really tell on this. I mean, 
it feels a little gossipy almost in a way. Like there's there's not a lot of concrete <laughs> evidence to this. So I don't know. I, I definitely think uh, it's never a good idea or never a good uh, visual to have, you know, large groups of employees kind of leave the company and say, you know, everything is all screwed up here. So you don't want to see that. But at the same time, you know, one of the one of the sticking points, no doubt, is the the issue with a lot of folks not wanting to work on military projects. And so I think Microsoft knew, and I think they kind of kept it on, you know, they tried to maybe keep some of the technology projects that were playing into IVAS. They tried not to highlight that they were for the military. Uh, so, so that has to be playing into this to some extent. Um, and, and uh, you know, so, so yeah, I think this one we'll have to let play out and see, see what really happens. <laughs> Yeah, I agree with you. It also, I guess that part felt a little bit like the Blue Origin story where people were just like kind of like dipping out in, in disgust for one reason or another. And this one seemed more like because of all it wasn't, you know, because of working with the military as much as um, just like the internal disruptions. But again, I guess I guess we'll see going forward. I, I think I think you're right. <laughs> as you said it, looking back on it, it does seem a little bit gossipy. <laughs> so so we'll we'll leave it there. Uh, next one, we got scientists engineer new material that can absorb and release enormous amounts of energy. And so here they're saying if you, you can imagine pulling back a rubber band and make it when you get it past a certain point, you get extra energy stored and it can go for a mile or something like that. So what this really is, is they've embedded tiny magnets into elastic material. And through that is they're able to control phase transitions and it's now a meta material. And so it can apparently um, absorb a lot of energy from an impact and release a lot of energy as well for an explosive moment. So this was a pretty interesting one. Again, it's pretty far into the future, but you can see pretty clear uh, military requirements being met by this thing. I think what they're saying simply is flubber is real and, uh, and has a military <laughs> yeah. application. <laughs> Well, I, the, the maybe one, it doesn't have a mind of its own, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the the funniest or the kind of craziest part of this is the the fact that it, this is almost like a joint effort with the uh, Harbin Institute of Technology in Shenzhen, which yeah. has ties to the PLA. Yeah, and, exactly. And Army Research Lab, pretty kind of interesting. Yeah. Army Research Lab in China working together to make this a reality. <laughs> but the the lead researcher was a Chinese guy, so I guess yeah. it's. I'd I'd rather him be doing that here than just have never been doing it at all. Maybe maybe if he didn't come to America, then this whole thing never would have sparked off, right? So I don't know. Interesting. Well, th- th- that's exactly why I think we need to be really careful with the sort of anti-Chinese researcher sentiments because we should encourage them to come here, you know, do these innovations. Yes, does some of it leak back? Maybe, but you know, do the innovations. Try to you know uh, convince them to stay, incentivize them to stay. And you get the benefit of this. If it if they go to China and they do all the research there and come up with it, we're never going to learn about it, right? It's not it's not going to come this way. So, yeah, I think I think we really have to think carefully about uh, how we scare off too many researchers that can come up with stuff like this. Yeah. So we'll see what that becomes in what five, ten, twenty years. Let's let's try to keep our <laughs> let's remember what the meta material is about and uh, and hopefully it becomes something real. I was thinking armor. Doesn't it seem like it would be, uh, you know, oh, totally. Some, yeah, yeah. Like personal armor almost right. as well. Or you could, yeah. I wonder if it's like you could use this armor, you take a hit and then that like can actually power 
a rail gun on your whatever it is, right? <laughs> like, that would be hilarious. Power a laser response, yeah. 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 <laughs> uh, so a couple big stories here in the emerging tech world to defense. Shield AI wins Air Force contract intended to bridge Valley of Death. So they got a $60 million contract from AFWorks, the Stratfy program. And so that's kind of following on the heels of Boom and, and Hermius and several others. And I think this gives a little bit more clarity to that $60 million because I was wondering what Boom got for that $60 Because in certain cases, like some of it was from different places. And in this case, it seems that it's over three years, $60 million, $15 million in each of the first two years and three. 30 million in the third so we'll see if they're actually able to collect on all those obligations uh so there's the first one stratfy is uh going strong and trying to help bridge that valley of death hopefully there's programs on the backside willing to catch them though well it it sounds like they have um the special ops community you know really interested anyway they're you know shield ai guys already said they you know they feel like they've already gotten to the point where they're over, you know, over the Valley of Death. So, yeah, that's, I think that's all a good sign. I mean, they're working on a lot of other things too. I think a lot of, I think the key for these companies, and maybe this is something, we, you know, somebody will write a report on, is that, and you see it with Andrew, is they leverage like one product and they scale it with other prod, other products that as they go along. So it's like, like the Lattice AI system, you know, they're like incorporating that into some of the autonomous uh, under sea, underwater stuff, you know, and like Shield AI, they're uh, embedding some of their, you know, hive mind stuff into some of their drone stuff. So it's like, you know, they're leveraging these technologies in, in different ways, which is uh, probably the best way for a commercial company to really get the full benefits of working with DoD, um, because you know, if the scale's not there, it's going to be hard to have multiple product lines and expect all, and expect all of them to do really well. But by leveraging them together, you can create a product that that can, uh, you know scale the uh scale all the barriers so no this is really really good stuff yeah no that's actually a really good point what you just said there and but it's also kind of a risky strategy because dod doesn't recognize those things right it loves its program stovepipes and you're trying to do have like this enterprise capability with all these kinds of offshoots and you just have to recompete every program every time and time and again because sometimes they don't look like a traditional full stack kind of program they look more like these, you know, horizontal components or subsystems that could go everywhere, right? And so that seems to be one of the challenges for them. And then when, if that's true, how do they allocate costs and all this kinds of stuff? And I don't know, it, it becomes a challenge, but it, you're right. That does seem to be a very smart strategy. Well, I think we should start giving these guys some IRAD money. We give uh, $3.5 billion to uh, some of the big primes <laughs> Start, start fishing out some IRAD to these guys. I guess they can already start proposing IRAD in their yeah. rates, but then like they would have to burn their rates so much. Like, well, it they don't make this, any sense. I don't also think if they did it, they they potentially would be uncompetitive. And exactly the, right. Yeah, yeah. That would, and that's what would drive it, right? Because like there's like a scale difference there. Like these companies are putting a lot of research and development and investment money from you know private sources and otherwise into these products in advance of the programs, right? Whereas the other, you know, Lockheed, they got $50 billion worth of program dollars coming in. And so when you do $1 billion worth of IRAD, that's just like, okay, my G&A rate went up by 2%. Like, that's not going to really damage me. 
But if these guys, like, their GNA rates 200, 500%, like, that's not going to fly with anybody, you know? Yeah, we, we might need to think more about that because that's, that's actually a really good point. Maybe there needs to be some graduated system for IRAD in terms of how how it burdens the rates or how it's calculated. Maybe there's a different way of, of thinking about that. But you're, you're right. That's uh, Until you get to a certain scale, you really can't do it without getting like severely penalized, potentially. Yeah. It's also, I guess, their strategy is like build it full stack and then just sell it where the continuous upgrades plus all the cost of that sunk development is kind of built into it, right? But you can't really trace you know, cost to revenue necessarily like the government wants. So they would have to have these very like fixed price, you know, kinds of contracts to avoid a lot of this. Basically just never do a cost plus type of work, (laughs) right? Or you say that. Or use more services, right? If you, if they, if, if they, if we get into the business of buying more commercial services, then they can build the cost into that and amortize it. And it won't be, it won't be something that we have to get all precise about or, you know, have these sort of like production, production contracts where we get super, you know, precise about learning curves and, you know, how's this cost? Where's this cost coming from? And, you know, the services really kind of gets around this. So hopefully we can get better at at buying those. Yeah. And so the next one that we got here of the, the kind of new entrance, but this one's also, you know, kind of a larger one. Scale AI awarded $250 million contract by Department of Defense, and that's the Jake Joint Artificial Intelligence Center that gave him the $250 million contract. And Alex Wang here, the CEO of Scale AI, say it's their largest federal contract to date. And it's been the work, it's been the culmination of years of work discussing this with the Jakes. So glad that they got that over, over the, I guess, over, over the pole, over the line. But uh, both of these companies, you know, it's worth saying scale AI and shield AI, those numbers, 60 million and, and 250 million are, um, you know, ceilings rather than price or like obligations. Right. So can they actually collect on all of that? and then max that out. But, you know, to me, it felt like when I saw both of these, they were both in FedScoop, like back to back the next day, I was like, oh man, maybe, you know, like you can't rule out the hypothesis that this time is different. You know, this time, these firms, there will be some transformative ones that become like really big game changers. I think that we still can't say that, (laughs) you know, it's over, right? So... Well, it's good to be tracking this and we'll see where it goes. So the, the positive thing is that the Jake is getting real money and, and they are trying to stand up the infrastructure and uh, really enable AI in, in, in different ways. So, you know, the services are still going to have to take advantage of this and, and programs are going to have to reach out and actually make this make this uh, happen. So but 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 it is good to see the Jake is, is putting a lot out there for those programs to take advantage of. So. Yeah, great to see scale AI do this. And uh, one other one other point there is the article mentioned that scale AI has hired a lot of former DoD and government officials and yeah, former staffers. I, so I was like, I, I hope the message to industry isn't that you have to do that because I don't I don't believe that you do have to do that. Uh, it always helps to have insider scoop, but well, you know. maybe not. But a lot of people they seem to say you got to like hire that at least. It, it's not like. Hill staffers might be the right person, but like someone that has like PEO type experience or someone that can navigate that probably yeah. is a good bet if you're making that 
if you're saying I'm going in on government, like that should be an early hire is what I hear from a lot of folks. No, no, absolutely. It's just to navigate the system and to figure out what the touch points are. No, absolutely. I think some of your, some of the podcasts you've done with some of the startup groups have kind of said they, they needed that early, that early feedback and all that sort of stuff. You know, absolutely. I just, I just mean like you don't have to hire, you know, huge corporate relation, uh, you know, campaigns right. and, and things like that. Like, Hopefully, DOD will get to the point where these things are so commonplace that these smaller companies don't feel like they have to expend that kind of res- uh, those kind of expenditures uh, early on in there. Yeah, well, we'll see. You know, the the Jake, I think their budget's kind of been around the two three hundred million a year. So, like, not all of this money is probably going to come from the Jake. Most most likely, it's like, well, other you know programs kind of jump on and and, and start leveraging the Jake tools. Um, that's going to be one of the big questions. And I think that was one of the questions I had with Anduril when they had the DIU award, right, for the counter UAS. And it was just like, okay, well, DIU doesn't have $99 million to give you. So so who's jumping on this thing? And what came out of the DIU report that was nice for their annual report was that, well, they said Anduril, within the first three months of that $99 million award, they got... $35 million worth of orders, actual like task orders from like six or seven, you know, different um, locations or organizations in the military. And a lot of them were combatant commands themselves. And so, you know, that was pretty good to see in terms of adoption. And of course, Andorra got that one close to $1 billion SOCOM award. So we'll see if it's kind of replicated there. But, you know, as these things start coming through, you you really do have to kind of question, this This time might be different. Maybe it may, I have to have hope, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think it's one of those things where you have to set the stage and then, you know, it's going to take time for the larger acquisition enterprise to sort of realize it's there and then start to plan for it and to do all those things. But getting it in place is a, is a first start. And I think trade wins with the uh, that the jake is running has a lot of uh, a lot of good things that, that can be can be used so hopefully it'll scale very soon and trade wins is the ota right that's what they're running yeah and it should have, it'll have lots of different tools and different things that uh, services can, can use services consulting and yeah the, the range of ai services that they can they can use to kind of help them get going yeah so, all right, well, you know, we'll just do this one real quick because Palmer Lucky startup Andoral, of course, bought an underwater drone company. So they bought Dive Technologies, which creates autonomous underwater vehicles. And I guess Dive, it, one of their big ones is called the Dive LD, which uh, does a lot of things, but it can do anti-submarine warfare, undersea combat zone awareness. So I assume that's kind of like mine countermeasure type stuff as well. Um, and then they can also do peaceful things like mapping seabeds and oceanic oceanographic sensing. And I guess the one of the really big things here is that they're also using large-scale 3D printing and unique architectures that can really dramatically reduce the time and the cost of these drones. So this gets back to what you're talking about. Andural has this kind of enterprise technology, and they're scaling that along with these other types of applications. Uh, they, they bought Area 1, the two launch drone company they they've made a number of other acquisitions and you know now they're acquiring dive which is they're getting into the autonomy sea space as well so they're and girls getting their hands in a lot of places for you know relatively young new company yeah they are uh they, i think they're uh you know 
they're kind of the trendsetter for the non-traditionals to show what is possible if you, you know, you, you play the long game and they've invested a lot of their own, their own funding. And now you can start to see they've built up enough capital to sort of go after, you know, start to pick up other small businesses and, and build up their, their offerings. So yeah, great to see. And, um, I, I look forward to the under the undersea business getting uh, becoming a booming a booming place in the near future because man, there's just so many opportunities there. So yeah, the uh, so one of the I'm sure you've been tracking it. You know, Hayashu came out with the National Defense Science and Strat- Technology Strategy, and now you know we're always it feels like every t- every couple of years we have a new list of different critical and emerging technologies that we have to track, but she put out um, 14 of them, and they're in these three kinds of groups. One is seed areas. The other is um, effective adoption areas. And the third is defense-specific areas. And so I guess that's kind of like further into the future stuff like quantum and biotech, things that are closer and mostly commercial, like autonomy, network systems of systems, microelectronics. And then the last is like directed energy and hypersonic. So feels a lot the same. Was there anything kind of new on this for you or anything sh- ground groundbreaking? No, I actually, I have to admit though, I always, the, the, the modernization areas always bothered me a little bit because some of them were in different stages of maturity, you know, like quantum is progressing fast, but it's not, you know, it's not quite there for a program of record. Um, but, but things like AI, autonomy, uh, space technology, um, you know, advanced computing and, you know, all these, uh, some of these other things that she mentioned, you know, they are available. And I think that's the key is that these are things programs can use today. They need to go, go after them and incorporate that. Uh, whereas, you know, some of those, uh, some of those seed areas, you know, need to be kept an eye on, need to be monitored, uh, see when something gets to a point where, you know, uh, the defense, the defense acquisition system can can pull it in and start prototyping with it. So I liked, I really liked the breakdown. I thought that was pretty nice and gives a better view of what's going on. Yeah, there was also a couple. There's a bunch of like memos and strategy stuff that came out. There was like the software modernization memo, the continuous ATO memo. Um, they were. It really seemed like you know I had a question. I was like, well, are these software factories and all this, is all this stuff actually going to kind of persist after Will Roper and Nick Shalon are kind of gone. And it looks like they've kind of doubled down. And, you know, it seems like the DevSecDef is really for um, software factories, DevSecOps, and even continuous ATOs and stuff like that. And so what did what, did you get anything out of that? Yeah, no, I mean, there's there's a group, the, uh, the software, senior software uh, modernization group. And so they are, you know, very... Uh, focused on all these different areas. And so CIO, NAS, uh, different folks from the services, it, it's, a, it's a, a group that gets together on a regular basis and they're tackling some of these big issues. Uh, you know, you can critique all of this stuff, right? And, and people have, uh, you can definitely say, this is not the, you know, the end all be a solution, but it's, it's a, a very, you know, noble forward leaning attempt to try to get the department to shift to a digital adoption. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's something that's going to have to be iterated on and improved, but, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of, lot of goodness out there in terms of standardizing, trying to standardize some of the continue, the, the what's a continuous ATO, what, it, what is that, how you define it? How do you get an approval for it? Standardizing ATOs in general, so that there's a more common expectation. It's not just personality dependent. And so, you know, it, it's, um, 
yeah, I think you have to look at all that as fairly positive and just look for look for it to be built upon, like like Nick did, you know, when he first came started out. Well, I'm pretty glad to see it. I guess I I could say it. I, the question is whether that kind of culture really does br- break out of that community that it seems to be in right now and, re- and start to spread throughout the rest of the department. Um, but one thing I, I, before we leave, uh, Heidi Shu in her in her strategy memo, she did actually bring up our favorite thing here. She says, "quote The resource allocation uh, will need new process for new novel mechanisms and alternative pathways to f- rapidly field new technologies." So she actually said resource allocation process, and that means PBBE reform. <laughs> so thanks, Heidi, uh, for for highlighting that a little bit at, towards the end there. I think it's going to be critical in in kind of not just her ability to field those new technologies, but also that kind of relationship with the rest of those important people like, you know, Undersecretary for Acquisition Sustainment and Comptroller and um, and OSD CAPE and DEPSECDEF to make sure everyone's kind of moving together towards the aim, the ends that she's really trying to get towards. So, so I was a little, I, I don't know exactly what she meant there. I was a little skeptical that she was thinking Raider Fund, um, but but it, she could be she could be thinking broader. So I'll, we'll give we'll give her the benefit of the doubt. I, when I first read it, though, I was like, she's talking about the Raider Fund. <laughs> well, she could just say Ra- she could have said Raider Fund, but she didn't say Raider Fund. Fair, you know, one fair, of the things, point, fair point. I mean, in her, if you saw her confirmation hearing, she actually said, "Let's turn BA six four into non program dollars." And I was like, "Whoa!" Yeah. I mean, we talked about we we've jumped around on that idea a lot ourselves, but um, yeah, she kind of went all four, and I was like, "Hey, good for her." Yeah, no, she's, I mean, you have to give her a lot of credit. She's she's trying. I don't think she's going to be able to solve all the problems, but she's really putting a lot of energy into this, you know, Valley of Death and getting some of these technologies, uh, you know, getting the right investments, the infrastructure and everything else. So uh, I think you have to give, yeah, give her a lot of credit. She's really, uh, she's really trying as much as she can within her power to, to, to kind of uh, push, push some of these reforms forward, so. And she's also an acquisition person, right? She was like an acquisition executive at one point with the Army. Is that right? I think you're right. Yeah, before she... Um, yeah, she was the Army Secretary. Yeah, she was Army Secretary. And uh, she, she did a lot of a lot of, a lot of a, uh, She was big into acquisition back then, so she had a lot of... Uh, a lot of yeah, so she, she gets the other side of that valley. So hopefully uh, she's able to work well with the new ANS as he or she comes in. All right. Well, that's all we got time for today. Obviously, tons of additional interesting things to talk about, but we'll leave you there. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.